Well, good evening, church family. How's everybody doing tonight? Oh boy, okay. All right, let's try this again. Good evening, church family. How's everybody doing tonight? There we go. Thank you, student section. We appreciate y'all. Hey, my name is Jacob and I am the kids pastor here at uh, Crossroads at our Newburgh campus. And I'm really excited for this night. If you're just now coming in, go on ahead and let's come down to the front. I know for some reason, everyone has like a fear of sitting at the front for some reason, but um, I don't know why you do that, but come on in, we're a family. Let's, let's squeeze in, let's get to know each other a little bit. Uh, tonight, I'm really excited. Now, uh, we, we do kind of want you to set you all up with realizing that this isn't like going to be a church service, all right? It's gonna be much different. Um, so don't think of this as like Phil preaching at you, okay? We had enough of that this morning. So, um, no, I'm just kidding. I love you, Phil. Um, and this is just gonna be just a little bit different. Um, so I'm really excited because, you know, our, our vision here at Crossroads is to live and love like Jesus. That's our trajectory. That's our aim. That's our goal. Um, and to get there, we've kind of had some guiding principles that the lead team shared about uh, a few months ago. And the one that we're really focusing on um, a lot in these teaching nights is dependence on God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but we have seen and kind of identified um, something as a barrier to this dependence on God. And so we're going to jump right on into that. And so I would kind of ask you guys this question of how many of you in the room have ever gotten to the end of your day, especially if you work a pretty typical nine to five, and you have ever said, I wish... I just had two more hours in my day. I wish I had more times. Okay, so I'm a kids pastor, so I need responses. So like hands raised, yeses, amens, thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, I think we probably a lot have said that before that oh, if I just had this many more hours in my day, I could get it all done or have more time to do the things that you actually enjoy. Or how many of you guys have ever responded to someone whenever they asked you how you're doing with Oh, I'm good, but then two words follow after that. I'm good, just busy. How many of you guys have been said that before? Mm -hmm. Or maybe you've received that from someone? Yeah, I think we've all would say that we wish we had more time and we wish we were less busy. You know, this is something that whether we realize it or not, it is deeply affecting us as human beings. You know, being busy and always feeling like we're short on time, it's something that for us as a culture, especially here in the West, in America, it's truly a very, very deep problem that we have. You know, for, for me personally, this has um, really hit me. Um, you know, over the, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I was really struggling, okay? I was really struggling. There was a lot going on in, in my life about a year and a half ago. And I can remember a few nights in a row going to bed and feeling like I was having like extreme heart pain and thinking that I was, I was having a heart attack. And this persisted for about three nights in a row. And I, I'll, I'll never forget this, but I was, as I was getting ready um, one morning as my daughter is playing on the floor next to me, and I can remember looking at my wife and just saying, I, I think I've been having anxiety attacks. And that, has hit me 
pretty deeply over this past year and made me confront um, a lot of things going on at, in my life. And so I would get to the end of my day, um, even as a pastor, and say, I, I feel like this can't be everything. Why am I like this? What's going on with me? I, I, am I really following the way of Jesus? You know, the question I asked a lot is, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? You know, like I said, our vision here at Crossroads Christian Church is to be people who live and love like Jesus did. Once again, that's our trajectory. That is our aim. And even before we had this vision set in place, I feel like I was struggling to be the person that God was calling me to be. I was always in a hurry, always in a hustle. And this leads to violence on the soul. It did for me. And maybe for some of you, you feel that very same way tonight, that you're always in a hurry, you're always busy, and you feel like you're very disconnected with God. You know, this state of hurry and hustle, it's a huge barrier between where we feel like we are in our relationship and church, between where we want to be living in the pace of how Jesus would have lived his life. And so through this process, the Holy Spirit's revealed a lot to me and something that was very deep to me that spoke was this, is that my doing for God, the activity I had for the Lord, it far outweighed my being with God. You know, I came to know and follow Jesus probably about 10 years ago, around the age of 18. And so that's almost coming up on 10 years ago for me, but I really felt like I've been a one-year-old Christian about 10 times over. Maybe some of you guys resonate with that. You know, I've been busy doing way, way more in the name of God rather than simply being in his presence, getting to know the who God is and what he's done for me and being in his presence. You know, everything I'm about to walk you guys through tonight um, is something that you guys have probably felt, you've probably experienced, and I'm gonna be the first to say that I've embodied everything that I'm gonna walk through tonight, okay? And I'm not sitting here saying I'm perfect now, I'm walking at the pace of Jesus, and life's great. No, I'm still trying to work on these things and give these things over to the Holy Spirit and let him do his work in me and be a person who is completely dependent on God's spirit. I just simply wanna share my experience. We, as a team, we wanna share our experience and give a little bit of a diagnosis to kind of what we think is the leading cultural issue to a truly living a life of living and loving like Jesus and having full dependence on God. And that is our culture of hurry and hustle. So, you guys ready? All right. So what is hurry and hustle. Well, psychologists, they're labeling hurry sickness a disease. And one psychologist said this, is that hurry is a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. Another person would say it's a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task in your life faster and you get flustered when encountering any type of delay to those tasks you're encountering. Oh, I feel that. Another cardiologist by the name of Meyer Friedman, he says that it is a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. This was said in the 50s. Think about where we're at now. 
So another, um, a few authors, they give a few symptoms of hurry sickness, and I think they're hilarious. And so here's some symptoms if you may be suffering from hurry sickness. One, moving from one checkout line to another because it looks shorter and faster. Yep, mm-hmm. Counting the cars in front of you and getting to the lane that has the least or is going the fastest. Uh, three, multitasking to the point of forgetting one of the tasks you were doing. Yikes, I think a lot of us could probably raise our hands and say, yep, I have hurry sickness, or I am in a hurry. So we're gonna have some fun tonight. You guys ready to self-diagnose yourself if you're in a hurry? You guys ready? Okay, let's do this. So here's the thing, 10 descriptors of if you are in a hurry by um, one of our authors, John Mark Comer, that I've been reading and studying a lot um, from his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He has 10 things to kind of self-examine if you are struggling with this. So let's have some fun tonight. Number one, irritability. You get mad, frustrated, or just annoyed way too easily. Little tiny things, they irk you. Number two, hypersensitivity. All it takes is a minor comment to hurt your feelings, a grumpy email to set you off, or a little turn of events in your day to throw you into an emotional funk and completely ruin your day. Number three, restlessness. When you actually do try to slow down and rest, you can't relax. You read the Bible, but you find it's boring. You have a quiet time and you just simply can't focus. You go to bed early, and, but you toss and turn with anxiety. Your mind and body is all hyped up on the adrenaline and speed of your life. And when they don't get their dopamine fix, you start to shiver. Number four, workaholism. You simply just don't know when to stop. You go from eight to five, you eat dinner, you put the kids to bed, and then you're back at it that night on the couch on your computer. You would probably suffer from what psychologists would say sunset fatigue, where by day's end, you have nothing left to give your spouse, your kids, or your loved ones, and they just get the tired, grumpy version of you. Number five, emotional numbness. You just don't have the capacity to feel another person's pain. Number six, out of order priorities. You feel disconnected from your identity and your calling. You're busier than ever and doing more than ever, but yet you still feel like you don't have time for the things that really matter in your life. Number seven, lack of care for your body. You don't have time for the basics, eight hours of sleep a night, daily exercise, home-cooked meals. You live off the four horsemen of the industrialized food apocalypse, caffeine, sugar, processed carbs, and alcohol. Yeah. Number eight, escapism. When you're too tired to do what's actually life-giving for your soul. And so you each turn to your distraction of choice, whether that be overeating, overdrinking, binge-watching Netflix, browsing social media, surfing the internet, insert your thing there. Number nine, a lack of spiritual disciplines. You know, whenever you get over busy, the things that truly should be life-giving for you and for your soul, they're the first thing to go rather than your first go-to. Things like scripture reading, prayer, meditating on God's word, coming to church weekly, being in a small group, you throw those things out before you throw out other things. Last but certainly not least, isolation. You feel disconnected from God, others, and just your soul. You may try and sit down with God, or you try and sit down with friends, but when you do, your mind's list is so long, 
or you're just simply on your phone and you can't engage with God or with others. All right, how'd we do? One out of 10, two out of 10? No, probably not. It was probably more like what, seven, eight, nine, 10 out of 10? That's where I felt like I was. And it's safe to say that probably the majority of us in this room tonight suffer from being in a hurry. But we do need to recognize tonight that this over busy, this hurried life of speed, it's the new normal in our Western world, but yet it's deeply toxic. It's incredibly toxic. And if you're experiencing anxiety, what psychology will tell us is that it's often the canary in the coal mine. It's our soul's way of telling us that something is deeply, deeply wrong and we need to address it. You know, in a recent study, 39% of Americans report being more anxious than they were a year ago. I think it's because of hurry and culture and hustle. You know, it's killing relationships. It's killing love, joy, gratitude, appreciation, because people, we are in a rush and we just don't have time for those moments anymore. But here's the thing, it hasn't always been this way. So where did this start? How many of you guys like history in here? Good, okay, we're gonna go on a little bit of a history journey, you ready? So here's the thing, it hasn't always been like this, but what's crazy about this is that technology plays a humongous part in here, but we've gotta rewind all the way back to 200 BC, okay? All right around when the sundial was coming into play. And people have been complaining about technology since then. There's like a Roman poet who wrote this about the sundial. He says, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my day so wretchedly into small portions? Wow, really venting on the sundial there. But you fast forward to the mechanical clock. So in 1370, this is where the first public clock tower um, goes up and it was put in Germany. And, but before this time, before this, time was pretty natural. It was operated by how long the sun was up and whenever it would go down. But here's the thing, the clock really changed this. That lull, the, the dreariness of the nine to five, it now was very, very visible. Instead of listening to our bodies, but whenever we would wake and sleep, we now have the oppressive alarm clock or the bells and then t at that time. We're becoming more efficient people, but yet we're becoming a little bit more machine-like. Let's fast forward to Thomas Edison, about 1879. He comes along and he invents the light bulb and honestly not in a, for any great reason, to be quite honest, um, not for society, but he just really thought sleep hindered him so much from creating and being all that he was supposed to be. So he invented something that could keep him up and doing something all night. You know, before Thomas Edison, the average person slept 11 hours at night. I know, isn't that crazy? But in America, the average hour of sleep is seven. No wonder why we're so exhausted all the time. So let's fast forward to October 7th, 1913. One author would call this the birthday of the hurry and hustle culture. And this is the birth of the moving assembly line. Henry Ford is credited with this invention with the assembly of the famous Model T. And here's the thing, the Model T, it really changed how we see and engage and understand the world because prior to this, people were very limited to their neighborhoods, their villages. But now with automobiles and roads, this provided freedom. You know, this is where the joy ride, that term, that was where it comes into play. Consumption now, because of the assembly line, becomes the new God of the West. 
You know, history books, it will actually talk about the riots that happened at this time from workers. Henry Ford was said to have to hire 70,000 people just to keep 10,000. Why? Because the work was so unsatisfactory. These people, they used to be craftsmen and women doing very meaningful work, but now they just turned a wrench a couple times. But here's the thing, what fixed the problem? Because that's this, we still operate on this. Well, it was money. Henry Ford upped his wage to $5 an hour and it completely quieted the noise. And obviously there's been a lot of good that comes from the assembly line, but there are always trade-offs with new technology. So fast forward now, and with all this new wonderful technology appearing and booming, we appear to 1969 in a famous Senate subcommittee under Nixon. And this brain trust gets together and starts to uh, like predict the future. And they said by 1985, the average American would work only 22 hours a week for 27 weeks out of the year. Mm -hmm. They thought the problem of the future would be too much leisure, too much time to rest, too much time spent on the golf course, too much time spending money and too much time in general. Isn't that hilarious? That's crazy because here's the thing, leisure has actually gone down exponentially since then. Now the average American works nearly four more weeks per year than they did in 1979. Now, we enter what I would call the most significant and we're going to really center in here. And the year is 2007. And this is where everything truly started to change. And I think in future history books, this is gonna be as big of a deal as the printing press and what happened here. The year that the iPhone was released. 2007 was a huge year in what we're now living in called the digital age. This is also the year that Facebook went live for everyone with a working email. Twitter actually used to be a blog, but then it became the website that we know it as today. Um, cloud data storage was introduced. The app store was introduced. Intel switched from silicon to metal chips for faster processing speeds and a whole other slew of breakthroughs in technology happened. The internet and having it in your pocket changed everything. And it's even changing what neurology is saying, our brain structure and how we receive information. You know, a recent study shows that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. Each user is on his or her phone for two and a half hours over 76 sessions. And it's worth noting that a study on millennials, so anyone in the room that's around 20 years old to about 37-ish years old, they put up numbers double this. But maybe your phone isn't your issue. Okay, fair enough. Well, the average American spends about 2,372 and a half hours watching TV a year. So there's that. I'd venture to say that the majority in this room is addicted to their phone or they're addicted to some sort of screen in their life. And to be quite honest, it's kind of not your fault. Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook before he left, he did this interview with Axios and he admitted to this statement. Let me read this from this book. He says, God only knows what social media is doing to our children's brains. 
The thought processes that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while. And what this means is that the dopamine that's pleasure centers in your brain, the things that if something awesome happens to you and you feel joy and happiness, that's dopamine being released into your body. So he says we need to give you a little bit of a dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content and that's going to get you more likes and more comments. It's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. That is the mind process behind all social media. What they can do to capture your attention. So what is all this distraction? What's all this addiction? What's all this pace of life doing to our souls? Well, we're distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. We have more access to information than ever before in history. And what's crazy about this is that with all of this authority, with all this knowledge, with all this enhancement to our personal lives, we're not immensely better for it, right? With all this data in the world, we're more obsessed with metrics and goals than ever. But our telos, which is the Greek word for our ultimate end, our aim, your vision of the good life, where you hope to be in, by the time you're old and dying, it doesn't seem to be becoming a reality. Because with all of this information and life hacking, activities for our kids, programs to be a part of, it's not making ourselves better. But yet we spend so much time on here looking for it and trying to achieve it. I would agree with what one author by the name of Jefferson Bethke, he, he thinks it's safe to say that the late Steve Jobs and Apple, they've kind of become a religion for us in the West. Apple is kind of like our great high priest mediating what we think we want. You think that you're in control of what you're reading on your phone? This is the wake-up call. You're not. You're getting something given to you. You're getting what you think you want, which is connection and relationships and power, God-like knowledge of good and evil. And, you know, have you ever noticed whenever we're on our phones, we, we kind of crouch over a little bit. We hunch over and we usually have our heads bowed and we're laser focused on something that's going on right here, blocking out the world around us. Usually we're silent, we're solemn, we're, we're tending not to speak to anyone around us, but then we start to perform certain behaviors over and over and over. We start to scroll, we scroll, we swipe, we drag down that notification, we, we text, we swipe, we swipe, we scroll, we scroll, we lock. You know, in the Middle East, it's pretty common to hear a bell ring throughout the day. And what that means is that it's time to pray. It's time to worship. And people in, in the Middle East, they hear this bell and they get out their mats, they get on bended knee and they start to pray. But people here in the West, we hear the bell and we pull out our phones. It seems to me that we aren't just doing something on our phones, but screens and phones are doing something to us. 
And you know, maybe it's not your phone, but it's you're spending way too much time watching Fox News. You're spending way too much time reading political articles. Maybe it's too much time pursuing more money at your job. Maybe it's too much time with not being away or being away from your family. Maybe it's too much time chasing after crazy experiences in our world. And whatever your thing is, all of it is idolatry. It's distracting you from dealing with your hurt, your emotions, your pain, and giving them over to God. It's giving you false ideas of what the good life that he has for you truly is. It's giving you this false idea instead of going to God's word, instead of going to prayer to discover what God has for you. The truth here is this, is that we become what we desire. We become what we desire. And I think a lot of us love and desire what we read and see here on our phones rather than what we read and see in God's word. This has been the problem since sin has entered the world in Genesis chapter three because our desires, they got hijacked to what we thought was good. And I always go as far as to say that this is what this whole story of the Old Testament is about. You know, for the Israelites, they would constantly forget about God and what he has done for them and replace God with an idol such as kingship, land, money, military power, other countries' picture of the good life. And their desires would get reordered to pursue that very thing. And so for us, our desires, the things that we love, they're being reordered on a mass scale due to technology, achievement, hurry, and hustle culture. And now we have to check ourselves to see if our habits, our desires are reordering our life to, towards God. You know, being in a hurry and hustling through life, it can give you a disordered heart. I know for me, my life sure was. And so the question we have to constantly be asking is, who are you becoming? So how do you kind of realize and check yourself on what are your loves? What are your desires? Well, the greatest tell all of our desires and our hearts are the habits or the formations that you live by every single day. These things tell us what we think about ourselves and how we think about God. These things that are the things that you do that are just set on autopilot. It's the first thing you do whenever you wake up. It's the routine you have at work. It's the thing you do whenever you get ready. It's what you do whenever you get home and what you do as you're going to bed. You know, the word goals, it was basically non-existent until 1920, but then it picked up big time in the past 50 years. And we as a culture, we are so obsessed with goals. We're so obsessed with metrics, you know, lose these many pounds, don't eat this, read this book, gain this many new followers, try out this new product. The list could go on and on. But the problem is, is that finish line and end result motivators don't change us. They don't have a, a really deep effect on us. And so anytime your goals that you set, they get too taunting or they don't really play into real life very well, you give them up. And most of your New Year's resolutions are done and you've thrown them out by this time in February. So the thing is, we're not created for goal setting. God has created us for formation. It, you know, it's been scientifically proven by both Christian and non and secular science that we're story formed creatures. What this means is that we process information via a story the best. We process information via a narrative. And whenever our goals don't hit the mark of the stories that we believe, we shut down, we get rid of them. But we truly think there is a better way. 
We truly think that there's a better story to live by, a better way to take up what Jesus offers in John 10, 10 as the good life and the life to the full. And that is through spiritual rhythms and formation, living life exactly as Jesus would have lived his life whenever he was here on earth. You know, formations are not about doing something, but about a being someone. Goals are all about activity, while formations are all about identity. Goals are about activity, found formations are about identity. And so the thing we do every single day, it's forming you into a particular human being, whether you realize it or not. Here's the deal. What you give your attention to is the person you will become. What you're giving your attention, your time to every single day, that's who you're gonna become. You know, scripture, it doesn't talk about goals, but it is deeply focused about our identity. It's all about who we're becoming. And so the daily habits, the rhythms we live by, it reveals what we think about ourselves and it reveals about what we think about who God is. But it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't. We can change this because guess what? God knows you, he's created you, and he's speaking a better story over you. He offers not a goal to hit, but a new rhythm in your life to live by. He offers you an identity in his family to be a part of, not what our phones are and what's online is telling us. And so the question you have to ask tonight is, are you becoming more like Jesus by the life you're living? Who are you becoming? Are the things you're doing leading you closer to a deeper union with the Lord? or becoming more like that frustrated, over-anxious, always in a hurry, way too many things going on in your life, human being. And so, with these teaching nights, our goal isn't just to say, here's a lot of information, I need a lot of help, let's walk away. So what we're gonna do right now is we're gonna give you some time for some reflection, whether it's just on your own, or you turn to your spouse, you turn to a friend that you brought, and talk through some of these questions, and then Jeremy Locke, he's gonna come up here and provide a little bit of the solution to this huge cultural diagnosis. Question number one, what do you stressed or when you are stressed or experiencing anxiety, what habits do you typically run to? Number two, do you ever feel like you're always in survival mode? I know I felt like that. Number three, are your daily and weekly routines pulling you deeper into life with Jesus or apart from him? So what we want you guys to do is spend some time reflecting on these three questions, whether you're talking with a friend, uh, your spouse, or maybe just by yourself and you and God. But then once again, Jeremy, he's gonna come up here and present a little bit of the solution to this problem. So go on ahead, turn to a friend, grab out a pen or a journal, and let's reflect a little bit. All right, we still doing okay? Yeah. Guys, wasn't that awesome? 
I mean, heavy, hard to hear for some of us, but wow, it was good. Thank you, Jacob, for that. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, we're running a little short on time, so I'm going to try and hurry through the rest of this. <laughs> Guys, I was excited about that one. That was a good one. Um, truthfully, though, man, this is like, this is such an important conversation. I can't say it enough. Now, as I think through these questions, the one that hit me was number two, survival mode. Like that is, for me, that's where the journey began. It was feeling like, I am just caught in this treadmill over and over and over of doing the same thing each and every day, each and every week, and starting it all over again and feeling like, when, when does that end? Is there, is there something I'm moving toward? And I think the, the answer to that question is the word that Jacob talked about, formation. It's becoming more like Jesus. But that's actually normal. Like this treadmill feeling is normal. Um, I want to read this really, really cool quote uh, by someone named A.W. Tozer. He says, It will cost us something to walk slow in the parade of the ages. While excited men of time rush about confusing motion with progress, but it will pay in the long run, and the true Christian is not much interested in anything short of that. Confusing motion with progress. That is like the descriptor of this cycle that I was caught in. We live in a culture suffering in an epidemic of confusing motion with progress. But make no mistake, if we're going to re uh, reverse the tide, like Tozer says, it's going to come at a cost. But I believe that cost is going to be worth it. And I want you to hear from me, I, I think the enemy doesn't want you to be here tonight. I think it's that important. There is, there, is, there is a spirit of distraction that I feel like the enemy is trying to lead us, just kind of bait us away from the lifestyle of Jesus. But you've done the first step. You've said, I want to lean in. So that's what we're going to do together tonight. Um, it's going to cost us something. That I'm going to have to say some things that are a little hard for us to hear. Um, I thought it might be a little bit easier to kind of cushion the blow with each of those with a picture of one of my kids. So we'll just start here. This is my daughter, Hadley, when she was two years old. Um, we'll just kind of let these uh, lighten the load for us a little bit as we go. Um, I want to start by talking about the idea of peace. Peace is a word that's used a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, it's the Hebrew word shalom. It's used 242 times. And I think back to that question about survival mode. That's, that's the antithesis of a life of peace. Peace is the opposite of hustle and hurry. Peace is actually, I would say, the natural byproduct of a life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's actually how the world began. The world began uh, in this idea of shalom. God created the universe in shalom. And we see that picture most fully in the garden. Adam and Eve working, living, loving, being in the presence of God is shalom. Shalom actually means completeness or soundness. A lot of times we attribute it to just like a lack of conflict, which is really selling short the idea of shalom as we see it presented in scripture. And tonight, I, I, there was a few different directions that I thought we could take this, but um, I feel like the Lord has been challenging me a lot with the idea of trusting in him and the reason why I felt like landing the plane on peace as our ultimate outcome 
came from this verse in Isaiah chapter 26, 3. It says, you will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. And I've been focusing on this idea of trusting for a few months, and uh, truthfully, over the last few weeks, I have been dropping the ball time and time and time again. I find that I am like lost in this anxiety. And this is the thing that I've been trying to work on for a long time, but lacking this trust, and, um, or I, I would say lacking peace. And as I kind of reverse engineer that, this became almost like an equation or a progression in my mind. You start with trust, which leads to dependence, which leads to perfect peace. You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. So for us, if we want to find this life of perfect peace, it starts here. That's important. You know, this, this idea of trust, I think, goes all the way back and is tied deeply to the idea of sin. There's, there's a fifth century priest and theologian named Ignatius of Loyola, and he has this as his definition of sin. Listen to this. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my deepest happiness. You think about anything in your life that you uh, gravitate toward that is away from the presence of God, good, bad, it may not feel like sin, but if it's away from the presence of God, it's, it's not trusting that turning back toward God is actually the solution to the problem. I mean, go back to the Garden of Eden. Lack of trust is what broke the shalom. See, I would have expected the serpent to, to kind of launch this aggressive attack on humanity that God had created with a fierce show of power, but he slithers in subtly and attacks the trust between man and his God. Did God really say that? Does God really want this for you? That's a voice that I've heard in the back of my thoughts for a long time. Lacking trust. Likewise, our frantic and uh, hurried culture, uh, this way of life, is also rooted, I would say, in this lack of trust. Like I said, this is something that I've been struggling with, and I feel like overqualified uh, to open the, the, the jar of the problem that we're talking about. I feel severely underqualified to talk about the solution. But my hope is that just by calling it out, by exposing this together, that we can start this journey together as a church. You see, a life of slow intentionality requires trust in a God that is sovereign and powerful. It shows that we rightly see God in, uh, in his power to do more than we can ask or imagine. We see ourselves as the limited beings that we are. Hurry, on the other hand, I believe gives us the illusion of control. Subconsciously, we believe if I can just keep myself busy, if I can just fix all my problems, if I can show how vital and important I really am, as a bonus, I can also keep my deep-seated emotional unhealth at bay. You see, there are some of you uh, who might be limited on income. Maybe you're a single parent or caring for an aging parent. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. That, there's, there's a type of busy that's necessary. What I'm talking about is the unnecessarily busy. That is the kind of busy that has pervaded our culture. And I'm not here to define what necessary versus unnecessary busyness might look like. My hope is that you will let the Holy Spirit define that for you. But whatever your situation, uh, 
I want you to hear what this guy W. Edwards Deming says. It's a quote you might be familiar with. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. So if he is correct, then I would submit that our, our frantic, hurried lives tend to act as a mental anesthesia from the system that we have created. We fill our minds, our calendars, and our storage units to numb our senses to the powerlessness and insecurity that we all feel. But here's a picture of my son, Easton. <laughs> he was just like two and a half years old, really cute. Jesus, on the other hand, lived fully in every moment. He embodied a lifestyle of peace, and that's good news for us. Jesus was called the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom. It was said that he would proclaim peace, or shalom, to the nations. He was never in a hurry, fully present in every moment. Jesus took, uh, Jesus' ministry took place in the interruptions. Think about Jairus' daughter and the bleeding woman. Jesus is on his way to heal this daughter who is dying. The bleeding woman touches his cloak. What does Jesus do? He stops. Think about all of the blind and lame who saw or heard that Jesus was walking past and shouting, heal me, Lord Jesus, son of David. And he stops. He has the presence of mind, the mental capacity, the emotional capacity to stop. Walter Adams uh, says this about the pace of Jesus. To walk with Jesus is to walk with a slow, unhurried pace. Hurry is the death of prayer and only impedes and spoils our work. It never advances it. So I don't want you to think that I'm talking about laziness or something that stands in opposition to hard work. Jesus was incredibly hardworking and incredibly effective, but he knew exactly what he was meant to do and not do. There were people that Jesus didn't heal and yet, in the end, he was able to say, it is finished. And so we've stated our mission as aiming to live and love like Jesus. And so from here on out, I want to get incredibly practical. And I want to say this, if you're not a follower of Jesus tonight, uh, you have an out. You don't have to do any of this. But I would challenge you uh, to say that I think this is actually the best way to live. And so I want to dare you to try to live in this lifestyle and see if it's actually not a better way to live. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is kind of what you signed up for. I mean, if you say that he is Lord and Savior, if you say that he is your rabbi and I'm going to be a disciple or apprentice of Jesus, then my job is to try and adopt the lifestyle of our teacher. So if you're a follower or a disciple or an apprentice, we, we are striving to imitate our Savior. Pursuing the way of Jesus requires a heart and mind marked by peace. This weekend we launched a series called An Invitation uh, to help us take a closer look at Jesus and watch as he continually invites people into a deeper life found only in him. And it's uh, intentionally spanning the Lenten season um, because we as a church want to offer a similar invitation into this deeper life of more intentional life with Jesus. We've chosen to define uh, this season for us by saying it's an invitation to turn our hearts toward Jesus by giving up lesser loves for his greater love. Phil expounded on this idea of the greater love. I'm not going to sing the song, but it's there if you want to find it. Anybody remember it? Who's the bold person that's going to sing it? 
Nobody. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. So what I want to do is take the remainder of this time to walk through three ways to explore removing those lesser loves for his greater love. So I'm going to give three ways for us to slow down, to create space in our lives. For each of these three categories, I'm going to give some ideas that we're just calling baseline practices, just some entry-level ways for us to begin living out intentionally over the course of these next 40 days, this Lent season as a church. So three ways to slow down. The first one is going to be quieting the noise. Quieting the noise for us is going to create mental space. Why is this important? It's important because our God is a speaking God, but he does not want to shout. God can get our attention if he wants to, but he prefers the intimacy of a whisper. I mean, how many of you have ever been to uh, a restaurant for a date night and the background music starts to feel a little bit more like foreground music and you're trying to have this intimate conversation and you realize pretty quickly that intimate conversation was not meant for shouting. If you've ever felt like God can't or just plain doesn't want to speak to you, it's very likely that you've crowded out his voice with the noise of your life. So how does quieting the noise relate to trust? Well, when we fill our minds with noise, it's often because we don't like what's sitting underneath it all. It's in the silence that we find and face who we truly are. And some of us will avoid that at all costs. But this is a huge barrier to discipleship to Jesus. And what we want to do is we want to find a way to root that out of our lives. So what does it look like to root out the, the noise of our life, to quiet the noise of our life? Well, um, Jacob hit uh, a lot on the phone as a barrier to our discipleship to Jesus. I think that is a big piece of the noise in our lives. You talked a little bit about the statistics, and I want to make sure and mention that it's not just a millennial problem. Social media is, is a giant problem for many generations, and statistics are showing now that 50% of baby boomers use social media every single day. And the big, one of the big downfalls that we find with social media is the comparison, the life-to-life -life comparison, or should I say the highlight-to-highlight -highlight comparison of our lives. Theodore Roosevelt called comparison the thief of joy, and I think quieting our hearts is going to be impossible we're constantly faced with the lies that say, you're not thin enough, you're not thick enough, you're not smart enough, your kids aren't well-behaved enough, your house isn't beautiful enough, your career isn't advancing fast enough. Maybe for you, it's news media, or maybe for you, it's uh, podcasts or audiobooks, not letting any amount of silence into your life. We have to quiet the noise. So I would call all of that kind of informational noise. Another big piece, I think, is mental noise. And this, for me, is a big problem. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an internal processor. I, I tend to have a running monologue going in my brain constantly, which makes stillness and prayer and hearing the voice of the Lord very, very difficult for me. I heard uh, somebody compare the brain to kind of a murky jar of water. And stress and hurry and anxiety shake the water up all day long. But if you let it be still long enough, eventually it'll turn to clear water as the mud settles to the bottom. Jesus often began his day in solitude in the desolate places. And I found for me, the time that it takes for that jar to clear out is about 15 to 20 minutes. 
I have to take 15 or 20 minutes of absolute silence at the very beginning of my day to be able to have the kind of uh, mental capacity, the mental space that I need to be able to live and love like Jesus better. And so uh, first thing I do before I wake up is not check my texts, my emails, Instagram, news, weather. What I do is I force myself into this chunk of time to be able to let the dust settle in my mind. And so I want to give just a few baseline practices for quieting the noise. Now these are just ideas. So I encourage you to feel free to come up with your own. Hopefully you have something to write with that you came with. Um, Jot down ideas as they come to you. Um, But I just want to give some ideas to start us off uh, figuring out some of these baseline practices. So number one, uh, take your social media or news media apps off of your phone. Because most of these apps can actually be accessed through your browser anyway, or maybe you have a computer you have access to. We have ways of getting this information, but if you just remove it just by one step, it can help disconnect in a healthy way. You might even need to consider going away from social media entirely. I would just say this, I've never heard of anybody stepping away from social media and regretting it. The evidence is there. The second one I would say is to use your phone's capabilities to disconnect better. Um, You can go to your notification settings and turn them all off. After a few days, uh, only turn back on the things that you feel like you need, like phone calls, maybe you need to have that turned on. Maybe for work, you need to have access by phone. Um, But what you'll find is you don't need most of the notifications that you think you do. Um, And if you, you can also do things like uh, make your notifications only accessible when you unlock your phone. So you don't have that vibration going in your pocket. You don't have something constantly bringing your attention. You don't see it light up out of the corner of your eye. What you can do is intentionally step into that moment when you need to check it and intentionally check out when you need to. Uh, the third one I would say, uh, and this one I think is something that we can all do on some level, is to start your day with silence. Now, 20 minutes might sound crazy, I'm kind of crazy, so I need that time. But for you, maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's two minutes. I would just really encourage you not to make your phone the first thing that you check every day. Maybe you charge your phone on the other side of the room, so you have to get out of bed to get to it. Maybe you keep it in another part of your house, and you start your day by sitting up, taking a deep breath, thanking the Lord for your day, and then moving forward. Give God the first few moments of your day. Okay, so that is quieting the noise. The second thing that I think is important for us to talk about is Sabbath. And I think what the idea of Sabbath is going to do is open up emotional space for us. Sabbath literally just means to stop or to cease. I think it's important because this is where Jesus found his emotional energy to love the way that he did. Walter Brueggemann says this about Sabbath. He says, people who Sabbath live all seven days differently. Notice Sabbath is a verb there. It's to stop. People who stop strategically live all seven days differently. When you're coming from a time of Sabbath rest, you can love with everything that you have. When you're exhausted, but you know that intentional day of Sabbath rest is coming, it's right around the corner, then you can continue to pour yourself out knowing that the Holy Spirit wants to refill you. This rhythm is actually baked into the very fabric of creation. The only day that God called holy was the seventh day, and it was because he rested. So how does this relate to trust? Uh, For us, I think trusting God, uh, or or Sabbathing well, means trusting God to run the world without you. Your friends' texts can wait. Your coworkers can wait for your response to that email. Um, Don't quote me on that. If your boss, you take it up with him. But uh, (laughs) 
let's say your Instagram followers, uh, they don't need an update from you today. Your lawn can wait to be mowed. Your laundry uh, will keep until tomorrow. Sabbath means trusting that if you dedicate an entire day to delighting in the goodness of God, the world will keep right on turning. So what does Sabbath look like? Well, it means to stop working, to stop accumulating, to stop worrying. It's more than just a day off of work because those days tend to get filled up with all of the other things, all of the errands, the house cleaning, the grocery shopping. Sabbath is about taking a decided amount of time and letting the world operate in your absence. Because the truth is, uh, the world will actually be okay without you for a day. This is my daughter Hadley, and she is adorable. This is her, just really young, really cute. Yeah, I mean, it's true though, the world will be fine without you for a day. Sabbath actually takes a little bit of work, ironically. Uh, there's, uh, in the ancient Jewish history, there's the, the idea of the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath day, is actually a day to try and get all the stuff ready so that you don't have to do it on uh, the Sabbath day. So all of the shopping, the housework, all of this stuff is done so that Sabbath can be a day that's purely devoted to resting in the Creator God and worshiping Him for all that He's done. Uh, I want to say also that when I say the word Sabbath, don't think legalism, think delight. It's not about the things that you're not allowed to do, because that's, that's the kind of stuff that Jesus was addressing uh, when he talked about uh, how Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Rather, it's about the freedom from the daily routine of the things that you have to do and using that freedom to orient your heart back toward the creator of all. So there's uh, two things that I think are required to Sabbath really well. One is rest, and the other is worship. And again, it comes back to delight. Take delight in the blessings that God has given you. Delight in delicious big meals, or in a nap, or in a prolonged time of scripture reading, or prayer. Maybe in your situation, you need to give your spouse a couple of kid-free hours, and then trade off so that you can have the same. Maybe, uh, or definitely, uh, turn your phone off and with it, uh, the digital connection and cares, uh, a digital connection to the cares and worries of the world around you and delight in God. I want to give just some baseline practices for this idea of Sabbath. If this is kind of a new idea, an entire day fully devoted uh, to the absence of work and accumulation and worry and stress, uh, it can be a challenge, but I wanna give just kind of the spectrum here of ways that we can do this because if you're taking intentional time to be with the Lord, there's no wrong way to do this. So it could be a full day, it could be a full Saturday or a full Sunday or uh, for me and my family, because of our schedule, we Sabbath on Fridays, that's our day that we turn off our devices and do everything uh, that we can to rest and worship. And anything outside of those categories, we think can wait until the next day. Uh, If that can't work currently in your schedule, maybe it's a half day. Maybe you have uh, some stuff going on Saturday mornings that you can't get out of, and so maybe it's just Saturday afternoons, or maybe it's Sunday afternoons. Again, devoting time to the Lord is what's important here. It could mean guarding an evening uh, of your week. Maybe it's you you have a, a day that you know we don't schedule things on this evening. There's no chores, no bills, no phones, just you and your family and God. Lastly, I would challenge you, if all of those seem like a bit too much to bite off right now, uh, we have this 40-day Lent season. I would encourage you to try one of these ideas once or twice over the next 40 days. Because I know the first time that me and my family committed to this, 
We said we are never going back. It was worth it. Again, don't think legalism, think delight. What matters most is an intentional time to remember who you are and whose you are and trust the creator to run the world without you for a day. And when you come back to the world, you come back slowly. You come back filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to move through your days with the love and compassion that God has shown you. All right, the third thing uh, that I want to talk about is simplifying. I think this for us is going to help create some financial space. And the reason that this is important is because our finances are actually the thing that Jesus talked about more than he did anything else. The Bible calls it uh, a, a root of all kinds of evil. Jesus seemed to think that your heart would follow your bank account. And so if we are to live and love like Jesus, we would be wise to make sure our money is pointing us toward the heart of God. A really practical why uh, for why this idea is important is the Transform a Village initiative that you heard about this weekend. Uh, This is a way for us to be able to create $30 a month of margin to be able to participate in something spectacular and kingdom advancing. How does this idea of simplifying relate to trust? Well, this verse uh, is 1 Timothy uh, 6, 17 through 19. It says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous, willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You see, it pits putting your hope in one thing, riches and wealth, for putting your hope in something else. This verse exposes the contradiction between hope and wealth and hope in God. They cannot coexist. And I love that this idea here is talking about what's a a full, abundant life. This idea, uh, the word that's translated truly, actually means really or actually, meaning that there's like a life, maybe in air quotes, but then there's true, actual, real life waiting for us. So I would ask, is it possible that what's standing between you and the real, actual life you were created for is a beautiful home full of beautiful things and the insatiable desire for more? The answer to that may be no, and that's okay, Uh, but I think we owe it to ourselves to ask the question. I don't mean to suggest that having nice things is wrong, but I think what it does is it requires the correct prioritization of these things in our life. Because the New Testament seems to indicate that Jesus will not share the throne of your heart with the possessions that you hold so dear. I want to introduce you to Easton, or I'm sorry, Braxton. All right, what does simplifying look like? Uh, Joshua Becker is a leading thinker on the minimalist idea, kind of from the Christian perspective, and uh, he says that simplifying is the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. That's such a helpful way for me to approach the things that I tend to bring into my life versus the things that I think need to exit my life. It's pretty simple, really. You purge your home and your heart of the things that don't add value. It also means, I think, counting the true cost of something. 
For my wife and me, uh, a gym membership would have been great, but we passed on it because in addition to the $75 or whatever a month that it was going to be, it would mean at least an additional hour away from our family. And so that was not something that we were willing to do. It may be just a ticket to a movie or a concert, but what about the gas and the babysitters and the night away from your family? We have to count the true cost of something. Thousands of dollars of golf clubs or electronics or cooking gear, they, they all come with an added cost, the time that it takes to use them. It's not to say that any of these things are bad. If it adds value, keep it. But if it doesn't, it might be time to release your grip on it and maybe time to release its grip on you. So I want to talk a little bit about the baseline practices for uh, Simplifying. What does it look like to simplify? I think uh, one idea would be to create and uh, or redo maybe your budget with our definition in mind. Every line item should be run through the filter of uh, add or subtract value and also the idea of what is the true cost of this item. Another idea that I would give you is uh, over the next 40 days to purge maybe a room or maybe your entire home of things that don't add value. Pick a room in your house that you're gonna go through and purge during this season. Consider giving these things away rather than selling them. Try not to replace them with just more stuff. Or if you do, make sure that you're replacing things that don't add value with things that do. The last thing that I would say the baseline practice for this would be uh, discover the things that you can go without. Maybe you can go without Starbucks. Maybe you can learn the craft of making great coffee and go without. Maybe you can go without a gym membership and cultivate the skill and discipline of working out in your home or at a park. Maybe you realize that you don't actually need Netflix and YouTube TV and Disney Plus and Hulu because the truth is you're just going to like flip through the menu for 45 minutes only to end up renting something off of iTunes anyway because I've been there. Uh, and the bonus with that one also is that's going to help quiet the noise in your life too. Um, simplifying, being intentional with the time that we have, being intentional with the things that we fill our life and our homes with. So all three of these things, the noise, the packed schedules, the desire for more stuff, it adds up to a frantic life of hurry and leads us away from the life and pace of Jesus whom we serve. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And so remember, this is not meant to be a burden, but it's meant to be an invitation. It's an invitation to the pace of life that creates intentional space for the life and love of Jesus to take root deep in our souls and to flow out of every facet of our lives. So I think it's only appropriate to end our time tonight or to begin the conclusion of our time tonight with a time of listening prayer, to be able to ask the Lord what he would ask of us. And so to do that, I'm gonna invite my good friend, Lori Rogers, to come up here and walk us through that. All right. Um, Jesus has given us an invitation tonight. And thank you, Jacob and Jeremy, um, you did a great job of um, just helping us understand what are the challenges and what are the opportunities of living in 2020. So thank you very much. 
Um, I also want to tell you, Jacob checked with the um, children's helpers back in the back, and they're doing okay. Um, but we know we're going just a little bit long. Um, and if you need to get those kids home and get them to bed, we certainly understand that. Um, but what we have, just for, to close us out tonight, is we have a gift for you. We want to give you just a few minutes to sit with the Lord in quiet. Um, after all that we've taken in, um, we felt like that would be just be a really good way for us to stop and um, just listen to him a little bit. So, um, you know, that's important because commu- good communication, um, good relationships has, have communication that go both ways. And that with this invitation, we need to cl- slow down and create space for God's voice. Um, before we take a few minutes of those quiet, I just want to tell you just a few tips. Um, you maybe haven't done this before, just taking a few minutes to stop and listen to the Lord's voice. And so just a few tips. Keep in mind that God's voice is calming. It's reassuring. He is always um, kind. Um, he never contradicts his word. And um, he doesn't speak with any guilt or any shame. So when you get quiet, if you hear something that does not sound like that, it's possible that the enemy is harassing you. It's possible that maybe just your own self-talk is going on, but the Lord's voice is kind. Even when he convicts of sin, he does it in a kind way that points the way forward. Okay, so if you're hearing anything tonight that sounds like condemnation, that is not from the Lord. His voice is kind. So if you hear any negative voices, just take a minute and say, "Um, Jesus, I only want to hear your voice. Um, Would you please silence any other voices that I'm hearing right now and give me ears to hear you? And then just come back to that place of being silent before the Lord and see what happens. You know, I often will um, like just write down my question for the Lord and then um, I'll write down what I hear next and that helps me um, to focus in. It also helps me to remember what I hear the Lord say. Um, Or, you know, you can simply just um, sit back and listen to him in your heart and in your mind. Um, Just one other thing here, you know, if you don't hear something specific right away, Um, It could be really tempting to just let your mind wander off, wander into the week, but be intentional. Be intentional. Don't go into that numb, um, nothingness kind of place, but just sit and anticipate the Lord's voice and rest of that. You know, with practice, we can do this because in John 10, Jesus said that his sheep can hear his voice. And so... um, I'm going to pray and then just give us a few minutes um, to just be silent before the Lord. So Jesus, we thank you that you are a God that speaks. And we thank you that um, you are inviting us into this time tonight. Would you give us ears to hear the intimately designed invitation that you have specifically for each one of us? Please silence other voices and um, help us to rest in you and enjoy this time. So just take a few minutes to listen before the Lord. What does his invitation look like for you tonight? 
What does it look like to slow down and create more space for him? And I'll come back and close us in prayer in a few minutes. Jesus, thank you. You are so kind. You are so refreshing. And right now, I just bless every person in this room to continue to make more space for Jesus. And we say together, we want to learn to live and love more like Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Lori. All right, so we have uh, a couple days until the beginning of Lent. So I want you to take two days to ask the Lord to reveal to you what, uh, what do you need to remove? What is the lesser love that you need to replace with the greater love of our God? Uh, at the end of each pew, I think on the inside of each section, uh, there's these cards that say just create space on one side. It's a great reminder for us. On the back are three resources that we wanted to recommend if you wanted to take a deeper dive into any of these topics. Um, so just real quickly, uh, this is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. This, this book, I would say, uh, most of our content tonight came from ideas uh, spoken about in this book. So I couldn't recommend this more. Uh, if the idea of uh, the, tech, the technology, the, the addiction to technology in our lives, how to have a healthy relationship with your technology uh, stuck out to you tonight, uh, there's this book called The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. Um, he's got a number of resources on this topic, but this is a great start uh, to begin that journey of a healthy relationship with technology. Uh, number one there is called uh, The Emotionally, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. And this is a book that actually our entire staff and elders are going through together um, because this is really the, the, the road that we want to go on uh, that all of this is leading toward is to be an emotionally healthy follower and disciple of Jesus. Last thing I wanna say is uh, our next teaching night is gonna be May 3rd. And uh, it's going to be a night where we're going to dive into what's called building a rule of life. So don't think about rules for life. Uh, this is just an intentional way of ordering our lives around the way and practice of Jesus. And so we hope to see you then. Uh, it's going to be right here. And uh, yeah, May 3rd, we're looking forward to that. So um, we'll talk about that more as the day approaches. But I just want to say, guys, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of this with us. Uh, this is the beginning of the journey. We just skimmed the surface, but I believe that God has so much more in front of us uh, if we can faithfully take these steps together. Um, 
So yeah, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, Y'all have a great week. We'll see you next weekend.